The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Right now on Fast, sell it all. That is a Chartmaster's warning on one of the most widely held stocks in the market, the name he's getting sour on, and what that means for the rest of the market. Plus, the Dow breaking a five-day win streak on the heels of the latest Fed minutes, but at least one top economist thinks the central bank is making all the right moves. Former PIMCO chief economist Paul McCulley joins us with his take on what's next for the Fed. And later, beyond belief. Shares of Bed Bath & Beyond dropping late in the day after a new filing from Ryan Cohen. What he is doing with the stock and how the markets are responding. We get some answers. We also get heated up about this one. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money, live from the Nasdaq market side in the heart of Times Square. On the desk tonight, Tim Seymour, Dan Nathan, Guy Adami, and Karen Feinerman. We start off with the Chartmaster's big warning on Apple. His latest note calling an end to the tech giant's eight-week run in which it gained nearly 30% and climbed within 5% of its all-time high. Let's bring in Carter Worth of Worth Charting. Carter, our viewers know you quite well. You're uh, a, a man who is level in your emotion, and yet this call went out today and it had exclamations in the headline, and, and that really caught my eye. So, so walk us through. Well, uh, hold on. I, uh, I, I, yes, uh, but no exclamation points. I hold back on those, but it, uh, certainly in fact, <laughs> to write uh, sell it all is um, uh, certainly uh, definitive, right, and, and emphatic. And here, here's the thing. Uh, we know, before we look at the charts, we know that what makes a market is just exactly what you see in Apple. It's the largest stock out there. It's 7.3% of the S&P, and it's covered by some 40, 50 analysts. In fact, there are people whose 12-month price targets are as high as 220 and as low as 140 from top 10, top five brokerage firms. And there is the rub. How can it, one man or woman or one analyst think it's worth 220 and one think it's worth 140? with the same access, the same information, the same spreadsheets and cues in case. And then here's a technician. I'm sure the technicians that want to ride the momentum. My thinking is, this technician, that it's just too steep, uncorrected, almost unnatural. Let's look at some angles. So the first chart is a comparative chart. And it's just Apple versus the QQQ. It's its peers, if you will. And it's a one-year comparative chart, and we know the spread is what it is. The numbers are Apple's up 16 70%, the Q's down 10 If we take this back a bit further, take a look at a five-year chart. We have the same spread, uh, meaning Apple outperforming the QQQ, of which is, of course, a big part, so there is some autocorrelation. But Apple's up 340%, Q's are up 130 Or the 10-year final comparative chart, we know that, again, Apple has more than doubled the other large 100 stocks in the NASDAQ 100 represented by the QQQ. So, but the here and now is what sort of gives me pause. Let's look at two charts. What we know from the absolute low of June, June 16th, Apple is up 35%. And the angle of the line is becoming increasingly unnatural. No givebacks, no, not even a, a down two-day sequence. And so, not only do we have that sort of unnatural uh, line, we are up against a downtrend line, which is annotated quite clearly there on the screen. It also is otherwise known as a megaphone. Forget about what that kind of talk is. 
it's a, it's, it's a move to a difficult level. And if you pull this back and we do one more chart, it's just putting this in uh, context of going back to a pre-pandemic uh, uh, wipeout. And so, again, there'll be people who say, no, you stick with momentum, you ride it until it starts to show you reasons not to. My thinking is that to some extent, this is almost the face of fear. People are hiding uh, or wanting to be in this particular uh, stock, uh, maybe at the exclusion of all others. For instance, of the stocks in the QQQ, there were only 10 up today, uh, but Apple leading the way yet again. Just a little too popular, a little too happy, a little too good. Could, could fear, Carter, in this market context that we're in, um, keep that unnatural line uh, unnatural? <laughs> Well, I mean, it, certainly you can get, you know, as the expression goes, overbought or oversold and stay that way for great periods of time. But if one were to use oscillators, I don't particularly, but you could look at a MACD or an RSI, you could look at a Bollinger Band, or one can just look at where this is in relation to where it's been. Uh, a move like this uh, is hard to sustain much longer. And at a minimum, if one's long, you take a little off, or you write some calls, or if you have the dexterity, you try some options to do something rather than just blindly stay long. Right. Carter, thank you. Carter Braxton Worth. Sure. And we have to uh, do a correction here. There is no exclamation point. I looked again, but I felt the emphasis in Carter's tone in the note. It came through the email and leapt out at me. Um, Dan Nathan, what do you make of this? All right. Well, listen, I got this email from Worth Charting today and I immediately thought about dexterity. Okay. There were actually exclamation points in my head because I've been looking for a reason why this stock should correct a little bit. I agree that slope is unnatural. And when you think about that 35% rise that it's had. That's pushed this valuation. I know Tim will have a lot to say about this. 27 times for a company in the out year, okay, so one quarter away from their fiscal 2023 um, earnings and revenue guidance. They're expected to be mid-single digits here. So when you think about how unnatural of a move that is, maybe it gets back to that 182 all-time high on January 2nd. Maybe it gets back, you know, maybe only to 180, the high in March or so. I think the risk-reward sets up really well to the downside here. I bought puts in September, looking out a month. If you look at implied volatility, the price of options right now at 24% in line with the historical vol, how much it's been moving. That says to me that directional bets using options long premium looked very attractive. So that's what I'm doing. I'm looking down. I'm risking about 2% of the stock price over the next month for a 4% break even to the downside. I like that risk reward here. So I, I, I've been flat of Apple. I got out at around 164 on the way down and I was talking about 125. I was talking about levels that we largely got to, but um, I'm going to echo a lot of support for the same call here. Again, you had uh, 175 to 180, the highs you hit in December, then in January, then later in March. Uh, I think there's a ton of resistance up there, but more importantly, it is at 27 times here. Um, this is a company that part of the, the argument here is, is this is the greatest pull forward story, I think, in history. I know we've talked about COVID has-beens has and, and those that have been in the sweet spot. Uh, I, I just think that Apple and Apple demand is not something we've heard anything about. We've heard about supply chain. We've heard about China. We've heard about this and that. We've heard a little bit about some pressure on the services business and where um, we probably won't see some of the same recurring revenue. But again, this re-rating in Apple has been all about the services revenue 
over the last three or four years. Uh, and you have to ask whether that can be there. So on multiple, I, have, I struggle with it. Uh, it's outperformed the S&P by 16% since that June low, and it doesn't make any sense. The only side of this that worries me is, is that if you look at cash levels, whether you're looking and you're reading Bank of America's uh, fund manager survey, you're looking at a, we're still at very, very high cash levels, uh, at least in the institutional community. And this is a stock, again, you don't get fired for, for going missing the way down. You get fired for missing the way back up. And I think there are managers that still feel like they have to own this. How about the reports that Apple has signaled to suppliers that it plans to sell as many phones as it did last year, Karen? And the cash, the cash on the balance sheet. Shouldn't this stock have a premium because of how fortress its balance sheet is in this market environment? Yes, it should have a premium, and obviously they do have a gigantic cash hoard, but all of that is known and already should be reflected in the marketplace, right? They told us that about how many phones, they, you know, that they could sell as many phones as they could. So I think all that's reflected in it. So normally, I don't like to trade around a long-term holding, but I actually, looking at the multiple here, because remember, a big part of this multiple is hardware multiple, which should be much lower. So that means you're getting a much higher multiple for the services, and in this environment, and with rates going up, I feel like the multiple is too high. So I will look to buy some puts instead of selling it. And if you're a long-term holder, you can buy puts, and that doesn't, you don't need to realize a gain. It stops the clock, but if you're already long-term, it doesn't matter. Ultimately, when you do sell it, it will still be long-term. So it's tax efficient for me to buy a put, and I think that's what I'm going to do, buy puts against my position, because Excuse it has come too far too fast. Guy, excuse us. Uh, we're on television right now. Yeah. Are you actually no, on the no, phone? No, 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 no. I'm actually putting on some hedging strategies. <laughs> it is after hours, so you can do that on certain trading platforms. Apparently, um, what do you think of this call? I just cracked myself up. He sure no, did. No, we played the game which we love <laughs> no to do. No one else, apparently. You know, <laughs> funny, if you but... didn't, if, if you didn't know what company it was, and you just had all those, and look, you're talking about a company with six and a half percent EPS growth, maybe. Four and a half percent revenue growth, maybe. The trades to the aforementioned 26 and a half times next year's numbers. Uh, in an environment where it just went up 34 percent in basically two months in a rising interest rate environment, while the Fed is continuing to raise rates with a consumer that is seemingly levered with a $1.1 trillion now in credit card debt, uh, unemployment probably going higher. This is a stock that, believe it or not, does go down as well. We've seen it a number of times over the last years. This level makes as much sense as any. And please don't at me on Twitter. I can't do it on this Thursday night, but I'm with Carter Worth on that one. It's not Thursday, is it? It's not Thursday. So um, we can and go ahead and, and, and ask I know it's Wednesday. I'm kidding it, around. <laughs> in terms of the bricks, the bricks in the bear case um, for Apple at this point in time, I mean, Tim, you had mentioned the greatest pull forward story, but I'm also wondering about the consumer. If you're a cash drop consumer, consumer, you love your iPhone. You will do anything. You will, you will not eat a meal per day and keep your iPhone and keep your cell phone service. But at the same time, you might cut back on services. I think that's I think that's right. And I think, again, a lot of these Apple services were even Apple care and things that people bought during a period where they bought new devices. I mean, these these have a runtime to them. And maybe you can argue that they're going to have to reinvest one hundred and nineteen bucks uh, to get the two year warranty. But um, I, I, I just think that the consumer at some point um, has a watch, has an iPad, has an Air Pro, um, has a lot of these things. It's the iPhone that we talk about hardware as a service that I do think can continue to be almost a subscription kind of a revenue. And we've seen with their ASPs, they're getting 
getting those higher numbers. That's why the stock trades at the premium, and it does. Yeah, I'll just say this. Uh, again, you know, it's become a utility. It is a luxury utility, yeah. to your point. It's not something, and I think the way that they've done the upgrade program, it's not something that people think of. When we talk about that average selling price, most people are not going out and paying $858 or whatever the ASP um, is right now. But I think with $1.8 billion installed base, that's the bull case for the services, that you're going to continue to grow sure. that installed base. You're going to continue to have this higher I mean, blended yeah. uh, multiple, right? Right now, that's a 43% gross margin. And let me tell you something. There are very few hardware companies in the history of the world who have been able to maintain that. This company has been growing that because of the services, because of the installed base. I'm not bearish on the company right here. I'm bearish on the stock. And I think that's really important because the stock makes no sense in the context of the market environment that we are in right now. So, but isn't this a market call? I mean, at the end of the day, because if you were bullish yeah. on the market, you you get out of the way of Apple moving higher. So you know what? So in May and June, when I started buying the QQQ, I was effectively buying Microsoft and Apple and some of these big names that were down 30%. I thought it was a little much for them, but I don't like the straight move higher 35% or so. And I also think it's a little bit of a ringing the bell. Apple is basically down 1% on the year right now. I don't think anybody in May or June thought that there was a high probability of that happening. I like like the idea of differentiating this is a call on the stock as opposed to a call on the company, but at the same time, Dan, it sounds like you're skeptical of some of the aspects of the company in terms of hitting forecasts. Well, I never believe in this like super cycles, okay? Like like 5G, just so you know people, I mean, I've been saying this for five years, now the stock's gone up, was not a super cycle. It's just a thing that people do. They gravitate towards the next technology that's there. So we've never seen that sort of thing. So this new 14 Pro that's coming out, people, on September 7th, I mean, it's going to be very much like the 13 Pro and people, the people, like four times. I I get a little hot here. I mean, but, but, but listen, I guess the point is, what's your time horizon? In, in about 40 minutes, Jim Cramer's going to come on, and he's going to say, don't trade it, own it. And he's been right about that. Yeah. And the stock has 30% peak to trough declines plenty of times over the last you know, 7 to 10 years or so. So if you never did anything and you're right back here at $175, bucks, you are fine. If It's the sort of thing that you don't look at the volatility in the All stock. Right. Quickly, Karen, are you bearish on just the stock or the company as well? Just the stock. Sam, mm-hmm. find myself in the uncomfortable position of agreeing with Dan entirely. <laughs> that really says something when Karen agrees with Dan. She, she, yeah. And she points it out the three times it's happened in the last decade. So and She keeps a tally. <laughs> That's all. another headline here. Let's move on here. We've got an earnings alert on Cisco. Shares of the networking company higher in the after hours after beating estimates in the top and the bottom lines for the fiscal fourth quarter. Frank Holland has been listening in on the conference call. Joins us now with all the details. Hey, Frank. Hey there, Melissa. Cisco shares rising just about a percent higher after the earnings call started at 4.30 Eastern time. Uh, When you go to the numbers, forward guidance, that was mixed. Revenue, higher than expected. Profit, however, soft for both the quarter and the full year. On the call that began again at 4.30, Chuck Robbins, the CEO, also addressed the supply chain issues that have led the company to have to find new suppliers and in some cases redesign products. He says that he expects that to have lead to higher cost in Q1, but as the year goes on, he expects those pressures from supply chain and finding new components and finding new suppliers to ease as that fiscal year continues. Investors appear to be encouraged by some of the forward-looking financial uh, financial metrics, including record remaining performing obligations at 31 billion. That's something that Robin says gave the company increased confidence about their guidance. Back over to you. Oh, one more thing. CEO Chuck Robbins tomorrow on Squawk on the Street. Melissa, I almost forgot this is the important part. CEO Chuck (laughs) Robbins on Squawk on the Street tomorrow just to kind of break down the quarter. All right. Frank, thanks. Frank Holland. Guy, your take on the quarter. 
Well, they guided they guided next year's revenue four to six percent. That's that's higher than previous guidance. I mean, it's a fine quarter. There's there's nothing wrong with it. It's not an expensive stock. It's not a particularly exciting guide in this environment. But you know, this is a stock that's gone from sixty down to forty one, forty two, pretty much in a straight line, and we're getting a bounce. So I think this bounce can continue, but. I don't think it's a stock that's going to, in my opinion, I don't think we're going to revisit 60 anytime soon, but I definitely can see it in the low to mid 50s. I think, guys, match uh, kind of is, is appropriate. I just from a thousand feet, I'll say that this is kind of like an Apple story. This was a hardware company that's been moving into software and security. And I think these are reasons why this multiple, which is cheap relative to anybody, um, is actually interesting here. All right. Coming up, a bed bath and beyond blood bath. Shares tanking in the after hours. The filing that got all the traders up in arms. We're all over that story next. Plus, former PIMCO chief economist Paul McCulley will join us to break down the Fed minutes, his take on rate hikes and inflation next. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with P. Jim, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Bed Bath & Beyond taking a big leg lower in the last few hours. It's down 17 and a quarter percent right now. The stock had been up as much as 45 percent earlier in the day, but started selling off after a regulatory filing by Ryan Cohen, the GameStop chairman, filing an intent to sell as much as 7.78 million shares of the home goods retailer. Um, Karen has been taking a look at this filing uh, because just yesterday we were talking about him buying way out of the money calls in the stock and the shares went sharply higher on the back of those purchases. Yeah, I don't know why that came out yesterday because that was in the original 13D. So he spent not a lot of money to buy those. And if that's what he started selling, he probably did nicely on that. But so he earned 11.8% of the company just looking through his filing. um, I'm not sure where he sold it, at what price he sold it. Clearly, it's way up from where it was, but actually, he did pay in the mid-teens for his stock. So um, it wasn't quite as much of a home run as I was thinking. I was thinking that he actually would have to uh, forego some of his profits because he owned more than 10%, sold some of that within six months. There's a short swing profit rule, but I don't think that it applies here, actually, because I think he may have sold it at not not very different of a price. So that's sort of interesting. From the low, he's made a ton of money. I'm not sure all in what the sale price is. So I'm not sure how much money he made. So let me get this straight. The the disclosure that he had bought all those call options, which were, 
you know, January 60, 80 and 75 strike calls. That was made in a 13D that was dated how long ago as opposed to, you know, because we treated uh, it yesterday. It, because as if that was the, the news point. I'm sorry, Karen, what'd you say? Four months ago. Four months ago. Four months okay. ago. So somehow yeah. it, it came into circulation yesterday. It, it moved the stock higher. I mean, regardless of, of when it actually came out, people were latching on to that mm-hmm. idea yesterday, and the stock was up a lot. Right. Well, here's the deal. He's an activist investor At the in moment, March. though, there's no evidence to me. Mm-hmm. There's no evidence to me that he did anything in those calls yesterday or the day right. before. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, so here's the deal. In March of this year, okay. So, assuming that he was uh, building a position, he uh, launched an activist campaign. He had an agreement with the company. They put three of his representatives on the board. Um, the stock shot up. It came back in, and it went as low as five dollars after that. Okay. So, whatever he was investing fundamentally wasn't working, at least in the near term. So, the idea that he bought a bunch of calls, knowing at some point he would disclose it, okay, knowing that that would maybe get this kind of I don't know this sort of activity going in the stock and the options. And then the day later, after the acknowledgement of the options, he unloads it. Listen, if you're a hedge fund, fine, have at it. This is what you're charged with doing, right? Buying things, having them go up, and sell them when they're up. But if you were an activist investor and you're placing people on the board of this company who have a fiduciary responsibility to help the management guide this company to a successful outcome, this doesn't seem appropriate. Karen, you wanted to add something? Yeah, I don't think that's what he did. I think that information was out there. Why it was all, you know, uh, just so exciting yesterday, even though it was months old, I don't know. So So if you're thinking he did sort of a pump and dump, I don't actually agree with that. Hanging, I mean, he made this filing months ago. Right. It's interesting, though, the time. I mean, I'm not saying that he did anything at all, but, I mean, it's interesting the timing that the stock has this huge pop yesterday uh, on information that is old. That the market but suddenly gets... it got pushed out there as if it's new. <laughs> well, um, and, and then he sells. And we, we, we forget that Bed Bath & Beyond has had many... Uh, in the last two years, you've had a number of these squeezes in the stock. And we talked about yesterday, short interest is over 30%. At times, it's been over 70%. Um, so there, there's a lot of dynamics at work. And, and Ryan Cohen is just almost the spark here. And, and again, the debate is, does he know he's the spark? Uh, and that's where there's a fiduciary responsibility to not move the market. And we're not saying that right here, but um, it clearly was a strange confluence of events yesterday. Yeah. I mean, I feel bad for retail traders. <laughs> guy. I mean, right. what a roller coaster this is. I That's mean, I, I guess right. you know no. what you're getting into, but still. Do they know what they're, I mean, I think some people know what they're getting, but I think that's exactly right. I mean, that's who winds up getting hurt in all this, I think is the retail investor. I mean, this stock has traded, what, probably close to 600 million shares over the last couple of days. And my sense is the lion's share of the people that bought this probably bought it at higher levels than it's trading now. So, we, you know, trying to tread lightly here, I'm not suggesting, I don't think any of us are suggesting he did anything illegal at all. In my world, it does not pass the smell test. And I'll just throw that out there. I mean, it seems a little bit much for me. Those calls were never... You know, I think those calls were bought, you know, thinking that here's a chip we can play at some point, understanding the impact it would probably have on the market. And I think that's to a certain extent what Dan is saying. We're not suggesting pump and dump, but those investments and those options were low cost way uh, to get things moving in your direction. 
I was just saying, how different is this, though, than a lot of the meme stock activity we've seen over the last couple of years? And at different times, you know, there was an argument that we're saving AMC. We want movie theaters. Like, there was, there was actually some kind of groundswell of, of emotion around the company. Uh, is that here with Bed Bath & Beyond? I mean, guy, I don't know. Can you get your scented candles and your potpourri in other places? I, I'm not sure. But I, is this healthy for the market? This is a retail investor, investor that's been emboldened in the last few years, has money to spend. Um, we, we argue that actually wasn't actively selling even through the worst of the market. Market lows. It was more of the institutional guys. So maybe it's a pat on the back, and maybe we leave these guys alone. I mean, I, I'm not saying that pat a lot of these. Uh, well, I mean, a lot of these right. folks have been making it, money it, in this it market. It could be that and, a retail investor was behind getting that disclosure out again in in the marketplace all, right. about people, the calls. His people leaked that. Okay, uh, let, let's be yeah. clear. Okay, like so that's how that got out. I'm just saying. Okay, and then here's the deal. So the guy becomes this meme lord because he joins GameStop, right? He becomes the chairman there, and that is the poster child for this thing. Then he goes over to Bed Bath, and that's in March when we see the stock do that, but the stock doesn't work, and then we have this whole Fugazi activity this week. It doesn't pass any smell test. Karen? Yeah. So, I'm, the, to Dan's point, I'm curious what will happen the next time we see Ryan Cohen file a 13D. But this one that, he, you know, this 144 that came out today, this says he started selling yesterday. He said so, when the stock was... Um, up a lot after the option information was <laughs> leaked. Up a lot. After it was I mean, can you blame him? The stocks, yeah, yeah. So His I'll see state. what you know. Well, you know who's going to you know of- blame him, Karen? All those people that guy said, all those rug, hold, you know, all those bag, bag holders, holders, right? Who yes. had the rug pulled out from under him? And so this thing has the potential to turn against these sorts of folks too. Yeah, I mean, what the reaction but is it, to the next ice cream? We've seen this before, though. I mean, we've seen this so many times, and. And, and, and again, because of social media, because of Reddit, because of chat rooms, uh, you know, this is why you get pronounced and exaggerated moves. With stocks, with the short interest is over 30 percent. And, right. and there's a lot of people involved in this trade. Right. And, and by the way, I'm sure a lot of retailer and retail investors benefited and profited from yesterday's run because of that information and may have played a role in propagating that information. So let's not discount that either. Um, Coming up, minutes mania. The Fed signaling more rate hikes ahead as the fight on inflation continues. So how will the markets react? We've got the details next. Plus, semis can't seem to catch a break down more than double the broader market today. We'll see what else might be stacked against the chips. You're watching Fast Money Live from the Nasdaq market site in Times Square. Back right after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome back to Fast Money Stocks. Closing lower with the Dow breaking a five-day win streak. The Nasdaq also taking a hit down by more than 1%. The move lower comes as Wall Street digests the minutes from the Fed's last policy meeting. Our next guest believes they reflect a victorious central bank. Paul McCulley is PIMCO's former chief economist. He now teaches at Georgetown's McDonough School of Business. Paul, great to see you. Good to see you. So you think they, they stick the landing here? So far, yes, I think so. I think today's minutes were fully consistent with what Chair Powell had to say back at the press conference on July 27th, which is the 
first leg of this tightening campaign was completed. And that first leg was what I can call the hair on fire leg or the expeditiously getting back to neutral. Uh, they knew they needed to get away from zero and get back to neutral as quickly as possible. Uh, and they did that. And I think that's essentially what Chair Powell said back on the 27th. The markets celebrated. And I think the minutes confirmed that, uh, that now they're moving into measured probing into restrictive, uh, but they're not uh, guiding us to uh, uh, specific large increases that become more data dependent. So uh, I think leg one is over. Leg two is still to come. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think it'll probably be another 100 basis points over the next six to 12 months. Uh, but leg one is over and the markets, I think, were validated with the minutes today right. on the rally off the bottom. Doesn't mean we're going to go at this pace going forward. But this uh, rally, based upon the completion of the first leg of the tightening campaign, I think was justified. Leg two seems treacherous as well when it comes to the economy, Paul. I mean, that's just from a layperson's point of view. Um, they have to remain sufficiently restrictive. Rate levels are for some time in order to control inflation. It sounds like there is still some question over whether or not they've got the situation under control. Why do you believe leg two won't be, uh, you know, won't have the possibility of, of a hair on fire? I'm not trying to say that I think that you should think that there's a recession, but why, why can't we take that off the table? I don't think you can take uh, recession off the table as a tail risk event, mm -hmm. but clearly that's not what they are aiming for. They're aiming for a softish landing, sometimes called a growth recession in some respects, not a actual contraction in growth, but a contraction in the growth rate with uh, an increase in the unemployment rate. So that's what they're aiming for. Uh, and I think they will be uh, uh, committed uh, to getting uh, interest rates higher at the policy level. Uh, but I think they will do it in a more data-dependent fashion and less of a shock and awe fashion, and that they will get up to, call it three and a half or so. And then the important issue is I think they will stay there uh, for uh, a while. And that was in the minutes as well. So I think this notion that Wall Street is romancing that uh, the peak will be simply a point and then we'll come right back down uh, is overblown. I think uh, the peak will be more of a plateau as they bear down on this inflationary pressure over time. Uh, because I think it's going to be difficult to get down uh, to call it 3%. Uh, we can come from 8 to 5 pretty easy, but I think they'll want to bear down on it uh, by having a plateau as opposed to a point peak. A lot of the, the scenario that you draw out, Paul, you say this is what the Fed intends to do, what it aims to do. Why do you believe the Fed can do this? Because the fundamentals of the economy remain sturdy. I think a lot of the slowdown that we're seeing now is taking the froth out of the economy uh, that developed because of the uh, reopening plus the extraordinary fiscal and monetary stimulus. So I don't think there's something corrosive uh, in the economy really at all, uh, that we got uh, above trend, we got above potential, we got too hot uh, coming out of the pandemic, uh, and they're dialing back uh, the heat. Uh, but we don't have huge excesses in the economy that need to be wrung out. 
uh, that would be consistent with a old-fashioned blood and guts recession. I just simply don't see that on the horizon. Hey, Paul, it's Tim. First of all, go Hoyas. And reminding you everything I know about macro and the economy you taught me at UBS when I was going through the training program in the mid-90s. So on to what you just talked about, though, where we really are. Um, 100 basis points possible of additional hiking. Um, is that the neutral rate? Um, and is that slightly above neutral? I don't think so, um, based upon the inflation readings we have. Is that the place to stop? I think it could be the place to stop, uh, and the incoming data would tell you if that's the place to stop, we should see signs that that's actually restrictive, uh, that is putting traction on the economy, and that we are below trend and therefore opening up some slack. Uh, so I'm putting out three and a half as the number where they will stop, uh, and that would be restrictive. Uh, this whole debate in the marketplace about neutral in some respects is uh, is wonks uh, talking way too much. Uh, I think the Fed used it appropriately because they print what they think the longer run appropriate value should be if they have perfect equilibrium in the economy. And that's about two and a half. But I, I think it's also true uh, that what Chair Powell did was to say the first leg of the tightening campaign was over or put differently, they are no longer behind the curve. So they're not trying to catch up or atone for their sins of being too easy for too long. Uh, they have reached the point where they are neutral and they will keep tightening, but not with hair on fire, but responsive to the slowing of the economy. Uh, and they will stop. They're not trying to induce a recession. They're trying to induce some opening of an output gap, if I can be wonky with you, Tim. Thank you. For a man that, ha for a man that has great hair, hair on fire is problematic. One. Two. Georgetown <laughs> is lucky to have you. The Fed would be lucky to have you. I won't bring up the fact that the bond market trades like a $150 million biotech stock or that twos tens are inverted to the tune of 40 basis points. But what I will bring up is they're going to try to basically reduce their balance sheet starting in September. Nine trillion dollars, obviously not all nine, but, you know, that's going to be a difficult thing to pull off in the midst of all this, Paul. I would actually take the other side of that trade with you. I don't think it's going to be terribly difficult uh, because, remember, there's a huge amount of excess liquidity in the marketplace measured in my favorite way uh, with the reverse repo facility uh, at the Fed, which is essentially the banking system parking excess liquidity that was the result of the QE because there's nowhere to go for it in the marketplace. And that's up over two trillion dollars. So the first two trillion dollars of Q uh, quantitative tightening uh, should have de minimis effect on the marketplace from a pure supply and demand perspective. Uh, so I would not get wrapped around the axle about this whole uh, QT thing going forward, at least for the first two trillion. Paul, great to have you. We hope you come back to My the pleasure. show sometime. Paul McCulley, now of Georgetown. Um, Karen Feinerman, what do you think? Do you think that hair on fire recession is a much, much mm -hmm. smaller risk now? Do you feel better after these minutes? Uh, no, I don't, I don't really feel better. I feel like they have still a lot of work to do. And I think that inflation's coming down. And I do think we've reached peak inflation. But it's still so far above where it needs to be. So I, I think, you know, I read that two weeks ago of no pivot, that that was no pivot. I, was, I thought it was hawkish. 
these minutes sort of say otherwise. But I'm still in the in the hawkish camp unless we see inflation come so far down. And I'm not that optimistic on that. And so if they have to put us in recession, they will. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that's their intent to put us in recession. But to Guy's point about QT, I mean, think about what happened to risk assets. Think about the volatility in some of these, you know, large risk assets that we've just seen in 2022 since the Fed did pivot and acknowledge that they had to attack inflation. So we had housing rollover, we had the stock market rollover, we had, um, you know, a, a lot of things that weren't particularly comfortable for the better part of this year. So I think as we go into the back half of the year, we might see QT have that same sort of effect as it did, I think, in the lead up to the end of 2021 when the Fed did acknowledge that they have to fight inflation. All right, coming up, former Walmart U.S. CEO Bill Simon, why he says small retailers could still see some big trouble ahead. We've got the details, but first, a dip in the chips, the SMH Semi ETF dropping today. So what is behind the semi slump? We're We're all over that trade next. Welcome back to Fast Money. Another rough day for semi-stocks with the SMH chip ETF seeing a bigger drop than the broader market. Bank of America pointing out that NVIDIA could guide lower for a second time this month when it reports earnings next week. Meantime, AMAT, Applied Materials, set to report after the bell tomorrow. And option traders are betting that the semi-slump will continue. Tony Zhang has the action. Tony. Yeah, that's exactly right. We saw almost two times the average daily volume in AMAT. And the options market is implying a larger than usual move, about 4.75% going into the earnings event versus the average we've seen over the last eight quarters of about 3.6%. And we certainly saw a more bearish flow here today versus bullish flow. And an example of that was 200 contracts of the August 104 puts were purchased for about $2.03. Now, keep in mind, these are options that expire this Friday, betting that this stock will decline by at least 4.5% by this particular Friday. So betting that we're going to see a disappointing earnings tomorrow. All right, Tony, thanks. Tony Zhang. For more options action, tune into the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up, former Walmart U.S. CEO Bill Simon has a warning for some retailers out there. The trouble he sees brewing next. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out Target falling more than 2% today after reporting a big earnings miss before the bell. The company posting a 90% drop in profit from a year ago. But on the other hand, retail sales, X-Autos, rose a better than expected 4 point, uh, excuse me, better than expected 0.4% in July. For more on uh, Target's report and the strength of the consumer, let's bring in former president and CEO of Walmart U.S., Bill Simon. He joins us now on the Fast Line. Bill, great to speak with you again. Hi, Melissa. How are you doing? Good, thanks. Um, there seems to be a, a, dif- a difference or a dichotomy between what Walmart reported and what Target reported. Do you see that gap as being very big? You know, I don't really see a gap. I mean, Target decided to clean up their inventory and took the massive markdown, and, uh, and Walmart, you know, did to a certain extent, but not much. And Walmart's sales were impacted by their, you know, huge percentage of, of their food business, and Target didn't have that going in. So I think that's really the difference. Hey, Bill, it's Karen. Thanks so much for being on. So it would seem to be a big mistake if they still had big inventory. So do you think that we're, one should read, we should be optimistic on how the back to school and early fall and Halloween sales are going or will go, I guess? Well, I'm concerned about in the inventory levels. They're still really high. You know, I think not getting enough coverage in Walmart's report yesterday is food inflation in the mid-teens. Mid-teens. I mean, that's brutal. The consumer's got a real struggle to get through that. 
Um, you know, back to school is really critical. And it's really because really it's the lead into the fourth quarter where all the money's made in retail. And so Target's position where they've cleaned up inventory, you know, seems like a little bit better place to me than Walmart. Well, they took a beating for it today. In terms of, um, I mean, if Walmart and Target, which are the best, uh, you know, retailers in terms of execution in the industry, if they're having this difficulty, how do you um, impute this on smaller retailers or retailers that may have entered this period in, in not as, um, a, you know, good shape? Yeah, I think that's exactly the point. Uh, you know, Amazon's a beast on, online between Walmart, Target, and Costco uh, on the physical retail um, there's just not going to be a lot of oxygen for people, particularly those that kind of came into this, uh, you know, the, the pre-COVID thing went a little bit wobbly. And I think that's going to that's going to be a real challenge for them in the fourth quarter. Hey, Bill, looking at your notes, jumps off the page. Department stores should no longer exist. Uh, talk about that, because I don't know where Guy Adami is going to be able to try on his designer jeans. Um, some people like to be in the store. I, I didn't say that they no longer should. Be. I said that they <laughs> they need to find a reason to exist. Right oh, okay. now, they've That's sort of difference. lost their reason to exist. It's uh, it's a difficult because you know they don't have anything that you can't get somewhere else, and they don't. They've sort of lost that cachet about you know the, the you know the, the shopping out um, situ- situation sort of experience um, has gone away, and pricing with inflation. And, and the and the consumer being you know being challenged right now sort of puts them in a position that they've got to find a way back to relevance. All right, Bill, great to get your take. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, you bet. See you now, Bill Simon, uh, a guy you're not you're not reason enough for the department stores to exist. <laughs> you and your jeans. Well, um, <laughs> well, first of all, I mean I'm the same size as I've been literally since night in my high school. Number one, I'll, if you want to buy me jeans out there, if you're in 3432 um, for you playing our home game, number one. Number two, the French have a saying for that, Tim. I think it's called raison d'etre or something like that. I'm sure I butchered that. Number three, you know, Target didn't get beat up all that much. If that's the worst taken, that's not all that yeah. bad um, given the tape today. So I throw that out there. And I still think Dollar Gen's the best of the month in the earnings, I think, on August 25th. I mean, they're still higher from when, when they started the day yesterday. I mean, yesterday, right, yes. they popped and they lost a little bit, but they're still up overall, Karen. The thing that got me was why not just, yeah. you know, that they stuck by their their forecast for the back half of the year, which makes me think that they are super confident about the back half of the year. Why not just take the opportunity to lower? Or say nothing. I mean, we talk right. about this all the time. It's not a bad environment to say, hey, things are really moving quickly and we just don't know. So I agree. I thought, you know, it was up too much yesterday. And so I really thought it was going to give back more than it did today. I thought that margin was terrible. Now, they told us last time we have a very wide range around our margin. We don't know if it's going to be plus or minus, you know, I don't know, several hundred basis points. Well, they were right. They had not a good handle on their margin. It was really bad. Hopefully, that's because they just threw out the baby with the bathwater and what the inventory they're left with is going to be good. I hope that that's the reason for their confidence. But I expected it to be down more on that earnings release. Coming up, it's not just soccer fans that may be angry about Elon Musk's latest tweets. The joke from the Tesla CEO that could have put him in the penalty box. We've got the details when Fast Money returns. 
At least one billionaire is actually interested in Manchester United, one of Britain's richest men, Jim Radcliffe, announcing today that he wants to buy a stake in the soccer club in hopes of eventually taking ownership. This news comes less than a day after Elon Musk joked about making his own deal. The Tesla CEO raising eyebrows after his initial tweet saying, I'm buying Manchester United. You're welcome. The stock in Man U rocketed as much as 17 percent in reaction, but Musk added later that it was, in fact, a joke. And he's, quote, not buying any sports teams. Shares of Man U, uh, 7% higher today in the wake of the sale rumors. So, um, I don't know. If you were the SEC, what would you do, Tim? <laughs> Look, uh, Elon seems to exist in his own lane of regulatory you know, allowance. I, I, I'm not sure. Also, I, I thought we called it football, not soccer. You're asking me? I, just, I don't know. You know, you know what's interesting? <laughs> to your point about this, this is very similar to the funding secured sort of situation, mm -hmm. right? And he did have this brouhaha with the SEC. He did have to pay a big fine. He did have to kind of, uh, you know, like there were some restrictions put on his tweeting and stuff like that. It's just not great form. I mean, his board must be fed up with him. And I go back to all of this stuff as it relates to his Twitter bid or, or you know, what all the jokes and all the stuff that goes on in Twitter. If you're a Tesla shareholder, it's been fine to date. It's a $900 billion market cap company. You made a lot of money if you've been in it over the last year year and a half or so. Um, but at some point, the chickens will come home to roost for this sort of activity. And I think Tesla shareholders are the ones left holding the bag. And just remember, he's been selling the stock hand over fist for every BS opportunity that he has related to what I think is a Fugazi uh, acquisition that he's going to be forced to do. He did not want to buy Twitter. He's going to be forced to do it. He's been selling Tesla stock. Up next, final trade. the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Karen Feinerman. Yes, so TJX, I thought that conference call, they were practically giddy about the amount of inventory and the price they could get for the inventory. So even though it was up today, I think we'll see analysts upgraded tomorrow, the ones who haven't already. So TJX. Guy. Admit it, Melms, that hedging strategies bit was hysterical. Just say it. Ha ha. Valero, VLO, sister. Yeah. Tim. Cisco, those numbers are good. They weren't giddy, but they reaffirmed and the stock's cheap. Cisco. No hedging strategy no, there. No, straight up. Dan. I'm hedging it. I like <laughs> Carter's call in Apple, and I think it's unusually cheap to play through books right now. All right. Thank you all for watching Fast Money. See you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.